provided that you're happy with your sleep, don't worry about napping, carry on napping, it's a perfectly healthy behaviour. That type of biphasic pattern can be just fine for many people. It's just that in the case of insomnia, doing away with uh, midday nap is generally very helpful. Welcome to the Seamland Podcast, I'm your host Seamland and today our guest is Greg Potter. Greg has a PhD in the Leeds University of Cardiovascular and Metabolic Medicine. His research focuses on circadian rhythms and light-dark cycles. This episode is brought to you by the world's most recognized probiotic supplement, Seed. Seed's Daily Symbiotic is a pre- and probiotic two-in-one capsule that supports your gut health, skin, digestion and so much more. Seed isn't a cocktail of random strains of bacteria that do nothing. It contains 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains, which makes Seed the first of its kind. Seed's Daily Symbiotic is the only probiotic supplement I'm taking regularly because of how much it's backed by research. I noticed the benefits it has on my digestion and overall energy. You can get a 15% discount of Seed's Daily Symbiotic by using the code SEAM15 at seed.com forward slash SEAM15. That's S-I-I-M 15 at seed.com forward slash SEAM15. Greg, welcome back to the show. Hey, Seam. Thanks very much. Nice to be back. Yeah, it's uh, been a long time since we actually saw each other face to face. I think it was like in uh, 2019 in the Biohacker Summit uh, that we before the pandemic actually when we last saw. So what's been up uh, since like that time? <laughs> yeah, quite a lot. I have moved house many a time since then, and I've also co-founded a company named Resilient Nutrition. And our goal is to make products that make feeling and performing better, easier and tastier. We launched our first products last July and we have a new product that's coming out shortly too. So that's been keeping me very busy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really busy in essence that you didn't like slow down with the pandemic and uh, still was able to kind of work and um, yeah, get your things done. Yeah, I'm guessing that if anything, things have sped up for both of us. Yeah, <laughs> that's, for, that's for sure. Um, but uh, did you change like your research, like your scientific research um, during this time in any way? Or what? did your like, focus shift mostly from just like the company? No, not really. But I'm not really a researcher anymore. I finished my PhD in 2018. Mm-hmm. And since I last saw you, I published one paper which was about shift work and the ways in which I anticipate the future of shift work might pan out and ways that we can better understand how to help shift workers, how we can better design environments for those people and so on. But I'm not actively involved in any research right now. And related to sleep, I, I do help various people with their sleep and A lot of the work that I've been doing recently, which relates to my work at Resilient Nutrition, is on helping certain types of athletes perform better. And obviously, sleep is part of that. But at Resilient Nutrition, we have several ambassadors and athletes, many of whom are ultra-endurance athletes specifically, and they're a really interesting population because for those people, it's often the case that getting less sleep during an event relates to better performance. And so they need to be at their best when they're very short on sleep. And there are certain strategies that they can use to ensure that's the case. Hmm. Wow. I didn't expect that. I think you should say opposite way around. (laughs) Yeah. But if you just think about an ultra marathon, for example, 
and somebody's trying to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible, and let's say that the race is 300 kilometers long, they want to spend as little time as possible sleeping so that they can spend more time moving towards the finish line. Oh, right. So it's not that sleep deprivation directly <laughs> benefits performance. It's right. just that the total amount of sleep that someone gets tends to inversely relate to their performance. Mm. Yeah, that's right. You have to kind of just make the kind of best of it that you have with the short sleep. Yeah, and learn to cope with it, but also prepare your body such that it copes as well as possible with that sleep loss. Mm. And that will also, like similar strategies, would also be uh, useful for the shift work. That uh, if you know that you're going to be uh, with like this uh, in this uh, misaligned circadian rhythm and uh, not getting maybe the optimal amount of sleep, then there are like some ways to kind of uh, buffer against that. Yeah, absolutely. There's some overlap between them. The thing with shift work, of course, is that if you think about the sheer variety of different shift schedules that exist, that variety is so enormous that in some instances, there'll be strong similarities between the two, but in other instances, not so much. Because if you think about shift work, you have things like the direction of rotation of the shift. So whether there's forward rotation or backwards rotation, you have how long somebody's going through a given shift cycle for, you have somebody's chronotype and so on. And all those things will influence what's best for that person, as well as the type of disruption that they experience. Whereas in these ultra endurance activities, things like their light dark cycles are remaining more or less constant and they're just trying to cope with sleep loss. So there's probably relatively less circadian disruption mm -hmm. for many of those ultra athletes than there is for shift workers, but the burden of sleep loss is probably greater. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Like a lot of people usually ask me all the time, <laughs> what, what ways to kind of uh, like it, they, you know, because their shift work, they think that uh, their let's say health is doomed and that they can't really uh, do much about it, uh, and uh, yeah, that they're gonna die prematurely, etc. Which you know, for sure, there is a risk for that, um, and there is like uh, many associations between uh, shift work and uh, poor health. Uh, but you know, what I like to think is that yeah, like you 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 don't necessarily have to uh, you know get worse or get sick. You can still if you still follow the healthy lifestyle and you implement some other strategies, then uh, you can still stay uh, pretty healthy for a long time absolutely and i think that there are certain strategies that shift workers can put to use that are more or less helpful across the board and then there are also some systemic issues to consider too so let's say that somebody listening to this is responsible for shift workers and has some influence over the work schedules of those people then there's interesting research showing that if you can do away with the most strenuous shifts for a given chronotype, then you might be able to support those workers' well-being. So let's say, for example, that somebody is an extreme morning type. Naturally, they like waking up at 5 a.m., going to bed at 9 p.m. If that's the case, and that person's going to find a night shift very strenuous, but a morning shift or a day shift is probably going to be okay. So if they're going through all three of those types of shifts at the moment, if they can do away with the night shift, which is the most strenuous one for them, then they're likely to experience improvements in things like their sleep, their well-being, how fatigued they are, their satisfaction at work, possibly their workplace performance too. So having ways of chronotyping shift workers and then using that information to personalize shift schedules can certainly be helpful. 
And there have been studies looking at people like those working in steel factories in Germany and various other places showing the potential utility of that type of approach. But then there are other things too, like the total number of hours that a shift worker works in a given week, which has quite a strong bearing on the well-being of those people. The direction of rotation I mentioned earlier, in general, people cope better with forward rotating shifts. So going from a morning shift to an afternoon shift to a night shift, which is probably in part because left to its own devices, the human circadian system is something that produces a biological rhythm, which is actually slightly longer than 24 hours. So if you or I seem were to go and live in a cave in which there were no time cues, there weren't changes in light and dark temperature, humidity. And if we had regular snacks of the same size round the clock, then we would find that our body's clocks probably ticked uh, slightly longer than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason that they cope better with that type of forward rotating schedule it's also the reason that most people find it easier to fly to the west than they find it to fly to the east and then there are other things too like if you're a shift worker catching up on sleep when you have the opportunity does make a lot of sense mm -hmm. using judicious naps can be really helpful too and i think a nap of just 10 to 20 minutes can be hugely restorative in terms of things like your ability to learn new information your ability to consolidate existing memories, boosting your alertness, obviously, increasing feelings of energy, potentially helping with exercise performance too. And the list goes on. There might also be some benefits to immune function and to cardiometabolic health because while you sleep, you see, for example, an acute reduction in your blood pressure. So there are lots of different strategies that these people can use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the. Um... So you would say that the napping is then more beneficial for shift workers, uh, but not so much for the uh, regular people. <laughs> it's tricky. <laughs> I think napping can be transformative for some people. And it's a slightly difficult subject to unpack for various reasons. There's a so-called nap paradox mm -hmm. in which if you look at the general population, it's quite often the case that people who report napping on a regular basis have worse health. Mm. But when you think about it, that could well be that it's because they have poor sleep at night and they therefore experience lots of daytime sleepiness. Well, let's say that somebody has obstructive sleep apnea, which is the most common sleep-related breathing disorder. And, oh, sorry, breathing-related sleep disorder. And among those people, as a result of their breathing difficulties during sleep, their sleep fragments and they have lots of daytime sleepiness. So these people are napping because their health isn't that good. And also, if you look at the regulation of sleep, then various different processes contribute to what's known as homeostatic sleep drive, which is the kind of hunger for sleep that you experience the longer that you've been awake. And one of those things is inflammation. People who have high levels of baseline inflammation might be more sleepy. So it's unsurprising that they're more likely to nap and are therefore more likely to have worse health in association with that. But the paradox of course, is that if you take people and especially if they're short on sleep, you have them nap an appropriate time of day, then you experience all of those benefits of napping that I mentioned earlier. 
Mm. And so with that said, if you're short on sleep and you need a boost in your performance, then smart use of napping can be really helpful. And also it can frankly be life-saving. Let's say that you're driving. If you've only had four hours in bed the night before and three and a half hours of sleep, then you're going to be prone to attentional lapses or maybe even micro sleeps at the wheel. And if that happens, then you could fall asleep, you could drift into another lane and all of a sudden you've lost your life. So you never want to do that. And you therefore want to stop at the next opportunity, have a nap by the roadside and then return to driving potentially. So I think using napping in an intelligent way is definitely a good thing. But with that said, I just want to add one more nuance, which is that if somebody's really struggling with their sleep, let's say they have insomnia, Mm. And there are different types of insomnia. There is the kind of acute insomnia that's entirely expected and not necessarily problematic. It tends to happen in response to some sort of stressful life event. Let's say that you have an argument with your partner or you have your wedding approaching and mm. you feel excited and stressed because of that. If that's the case, what happens is that as soon as the stressor is removed your sleep tends to return to how it was previously so that's mm. acute insomnia but in chronic insomnia things are a bit different and this is typically characterized as taking place on at least three nights per week for at least three months and chronic insomnia entails both daytime dysfunction so maybe feelings of fatigue struggling to concentrate at work, struggling with your memory, having a low mood and so on, in addition to some sort of sleep disturbance, which could just be you feeling like your sleep quality is not very good. It could be difficulty falling asleep, which is so-called sleep onset insomnia. It could be difficult staying asleep or sleep maintenance insomnia, or it could be difficulty because you wake up much earlier than you would like and you simply can't fall back to sleep. And that often results in a type of short sleep insomnia which seems to be the most problematic in terms of health outcomes. And for people who have insomnia, they're going to be prone to napping because they think if I can nap during the middle of the day, then I can in part replace some of the sleep that I lost the previous evening. And as a result of that, they might spend some time in bed in the middle of the day. If they mm. do fall asleep, the problem is that they reduce that hunger to sleep that I mentioned earlier. Right. And as a result of that reduction, they find it harder to fall asleep the following evening. They find it harder to stay asleep through the night and the depth of their sleep is reduced as well. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at ways of helping people who have insomnia, there are certain cornerstones of the thera- therapeutic approach, which is known as cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is the frontline way of helping those people. And one of them is known as stimulus control of behavior. And sorry that I'm going off on one here, scene, but no, no, just, just bear with me. The idea here is that certain stimuli predictably lead us to engage in certain behaviors because our brains are very good at creating associations between things. And sometimes this is adaptive. If you think of driving, for example, as you approach a red light, you reflexively brake because you've learned to associate the red light with the need to brake to maintain your safety and that of other people. 
But what happens in insomnia is that as people spend more and more time in bed awake, they start to associate their bed with somewhere that they're awake and they need to retrain themselves to associate the bed, which is the stimulus with sleep, which is the behavior. And stopping napping in the middle of the day is part of this therapy and the other parts of that therapy. And I'm mentioning this because stimulus control for stimulus control behavior is certainly one of the most potent sleep enhancing strategies that there is for people who have insomnia. The other parts of it are only going to bed when you're actually sleepy. So let's say that you have the idea that you're going to go to bed at 10 p.m. If 10 p.m. rolls around and you're wide awake, you absolutely shouldn't go to bed at that time. You should wait until you're actually sleepy. The other ones are if you've been in bed hoping to sleep for about 15 minutes or so, and when I say 15 minutes, you shouldn't be watching the clock you should just be going by your sense of time passing. If you've been in bed for 15 minutes and you haven't fallen asleep, you should get out of bed and you should do something relaxing, ideally in a different room, and then only return to bed when you're actually sleepy. Hmm. And then the other ones are save your bed for sex and sleep only. Again, you're trying to condition yourself to associate the bed with being asleep and then also setting alarm clock can be helpful for these people mm-hmm. and the reason is really twofold one is that by waking up at a regular time you can help reinforce robust circadian rhythms because when you're in bed basically gates your exposure to things like the light dark cycle if you're in a dark bedroom then you're not exposed to light i know that sounds really obvious but that's probably the main reason that having an alarm clock set can help consolidate your circadian rhythms, but then also waking up at a regular time each day ensures that you build lots of that hunger to sleep Mm. and supports your ability to then fall asleep and stay asleep the following evening. Mm, Gotcha. (laughs) Yeah, that's a long answer. And uh, so you would say that um, use the naps only kind of when you need it and when you have to use it for performance and or like health purposes and at other times still try to um, establish this more of a like regular sleeping schedule that uh, maintain like a consistent uh, uh, circadian rhythm uh, with that. Yeah. And I'll add one more detail, which is just that in some parts of the world, a siesta culture is the norm. Mm -hmm. And you tend to see that in countries with temperate climates. So you see that in, in the warmer parts of Europe, for example, and there's probably a good reason for that. So returning to how sleep is regulated, you can model this quite effectively using two processes. There's probably actually a third process, but we don't need to go into it. And those two processes are sleep homeostasis, which is that hunger for sleep that accrues with continued wakefulness that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the other one is a circadian wakefulness drive, which is the result of your body's clock. So the longer you've been awake, the greater pressure there is to sleep. And to oppose that pressure and make sure that you stay awake, your body's clock produces an increase in the drive to be awake during the day but then not long before you fall asleep at night there's a drop in this wakefulness drive and now you've got lots of pressure to sleep but little drive to stay awake that's why you fall asleep and stay asleep but in the middle of the waking day right around the hottest time of day there's a temporary dip in the wakefulness drive and what a lot of people think of as being the so-called post-lunch slump is actually 
a result of this reduction in the drive to be awake at this time of day. Mm. And when you think about this through the lens of evolution, it's likely that this reduction in wakefulness drive evolved to keep people out of the sun's damaging rays at the hottest time of day. Mm. Hence, in hot countries, people like napping at this time of day. And in some of these countries, what you see is a change in people's behavior between winter months and summer months, such that in the winter, their sleep is monophasic and they sleep in mm. one block at night. But in the summer, when it gets hot, it becomes biphasic in which they have a shorter nighttime sleep, but then they have a nap in the middle of the day too. Right. So if you're a regular napper, which is likely the case if you're in one of these countries, then provided that you're happy with your sleep, don't worry about napping, carry on napping. It's perfectly healthy behavior. That type of biphasic pattern can be just fine for many people. It's just that in the case of insomnia, doing away with a midday nap is generally very helpful. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's super interesting. And everything kind of explain, is explained through evolutionary lens quite well. <laughs> um, yeah, there's the old saying by Dobzhansky, nothing. Everything, everything makes sense. It makes sense for evolution, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, but but what do you think about the uh, this polyphasic sleeping, where you kind of uh, do several naps throughout the day, so you have like a very short core sleep and uh, multiple naps throughout the day? Like you know, I think it's you know, probably not healthy, but what do you think about that? I think it's a bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there was there was a, a recent consensus statement that was put out by a group of the world's best circadian biologists and sleep researchers that outlined exactly why that's the case. When people have tried to do this, and this has been studied using appropriate methods, it's been shown to be good, be bad for, for practically all aspects of both biology and behavior. So yeah. I just wouldn't advise it. Yeah, I've, I've, the reason I asked is also I've tried it. Like in uh, college, I did a hundred days of uh, this. I slept only uh, like two and a half hours or three hours uh, a night. And then I had like a two 30-minute naps <laughs> or maybe three sometimes uh, uh, during the daytime as well. So it was like maybe four, four and a half hours uh, for a 24-hour period. <laughs> Brutal. And how was that? Well, uh, you got used to it a little bit, but it was yeah like a kind of uh, being tired, semi-tired um, throughout the time. And uh, yeah, like at least in the gym, your performance was a much um, like hindered. Like it wasn't like you were able to push like maximum weights all the time. So that was yeah, one Sorry, team. I was gonna say, like, that's the reason I stopped as well to kind of um, keep making gains. <laughs> yeah, and I was just gonna mention the fact that that raises an interesting point, which is there's a discrepancy between what people feel and what is objectively true sometimes. Mm. And this was very effectively shown by a researcher named Hans van Dongen. He published a highly cited study in 2001 in which the scientists looked at the effects of different degrees of sleep restriction or even total sleep deprivation in which people weren't allowed any sleep whatsoever and what they found was that when they looked at some metrics of cognitive performance including vigilance which is the ability to stay on task as well as things like the ability to add and subtract while people felt like with repeated nights of sleep loss their performance initially degraded but then it plateaued at a lower level mm -hmm. objectively people's performance actually just carried on getting worse during that time 
And one other nuance to this is just that sleep loss affects different people very differently. Mm-hmm. Some people cognitively can cope very well with sleep loss, but the sleep loss might affect them negatively in other ways, say in terms of their eating behavior. And even within cognition, it could be that for you, seem your attention is negatively affected, but you manage to retain your working memory. Whereas mm. for somebody else, the opposite might be true. Gotcha. Yeah. And is that affected by chronotypes or uh, what influences that? It's hard to say. Chronotype as a construct is is fraught with a few difficulties. In general, it seems likely to me that that doesn't relate to chronotype. But I I mentioned the difficulties because I think a lot of people think of chronotype as being a trait. And certainly it has a genetic basis. If you look at the far ends of the spectrum of chronotypes, then at one end you have so-called advanced sleep phase syndrome or advanced sleep phase disorder. This tends to run in families. We know something about some of the genetic variants that can contribute to it. These people go to bed very early and wake up very early. At the other end of the spectrum, you have delayed sleep phase syndrome. And these people like to go to bed very late and wake up very late. So certainly there is a genetic component to it and the heritability is moderate as it is for most things. But when you think about what influences the timing of the circadian system, what starts to become apparent is that the reality is that someone's chronotype is probably largely a state at a given point in time. That might seem slightly opaque, but what I mean is that your light-dark cycles, so when you're exposed to daylight, when you're exposed to electric light and so on, quite strongly influence your day-to-day sleep-wake timing. And Mm. there can be substantial variation in that from one day to the next. You can see a variation of upwards of 20 minutes in someone's melatonin rhythm from one day to the next, just within typical free living conditions. And so what that means is that if you are actually truly an early bird, if Mm. you were exposed to a natural light dark cycle, say that you went camping, but you live in an urban setting, you go out and you see your friends at night, you're exposed to lots of electric light at night, you don't spend that much time outdoors during the day, your sleep-wake timing might be much later. And if you imagine that you take part in a study of genetics and chronotype, you might be put into the late chronotype bin, and then someone's trying to understand what genes are contributing to your late chronotype, but the reality is that you're actually truly an early chronotype. Right. So the whole study of chronotypes is a little bit tricky, And it's also somewhat confused by the fact that people define chronotype in different ways. And to me, chronotype is something that is driven by somebody's underlying biology. It's their internal temporal organization. Mm -hmm. But the way that it's been studied differs. And in some instances, people have approached it as more of a psychological construct. Mm -hmm. And really, this is about morningness and eveningness. So for example, one of the questionnaires that's been widely used, Horn Osberg's morningness eveningness questionnaire, asks people about when they would prefer to do certain things. It doesn't ask them about specific numbers related to their sleep-wake timing. And so really, 
it's asking about some psychological preferences rather than the actual outputs of their biology, if that makes sense. And so yeah. much of the body of research on chronotype is using those types of psychological approaches to understanding people's preferences. It becomes quite hard to identify what the actual influence of somebody's true chronotype is. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it does. And uh, yeah, I do, I do agree that there are like some uh, ob obvious like uh, genetic differences and uh, let's say biological differences in the uh, sleep wake cycles. And uh, but sometimes like the psychological ones um, are also pretty uh, common, like just people uh, stay up late because of the culture or society or the, their friends and such. And then they <laughs> develop this, uh, uh, this type of a particular chronotype because of the uh, like the lifestyle instead of like the actual uh, biology. But would it, would it apply that, uh, do you need to be uh, with your, let's say your, your original uh, biological uh, chronotype to stay healthy? Or can you still stay healthy if you were to be like your, your biology say that you're a morning person, but you become like a night owl? Uh, is there like some sort of a, like a mismatch that would uh, make it less healthy for you, uh, similar to the circadian rhythms? Or would it be that it, it doesn't really matter as long as you're still like, you know, sleeping well? It's, it's a good question because what you're talking about is somebody who's stably entrained or synchronized with their prevailing light dark cycle. And so their biological timing isn't necessarily what it would be in the wild, but they might be behaving at appropriate times of day in certain behaviors. So, so what I mean is that let's say that somebody's sleep-wake cycle is four hours later than it would be if they were camping and they were only exposed to the natural light-dark cycle. But mm -hmm. if that's the case, then from day to day, if their body's clock remains set at roughly those times, and when they're eating, when they're exercising and so on, is at regular times and is appropriate for their biological time of day, so let's just say that <laughs> there's a parallel universe in which they're in the wild and they're behaving in accordance with the natural light dark cycle. And just in the other universe, everything is just four hours later. Mm -hmm. So their breakfast is four hours later, the exercise is four hours later and so on. Would there be any health consequences of that difference? The truth is that I don't think that we know, but with that said, in general, when you give people strong time cues, their health improves. Mm -hmm. So nowadays, people on average spend something like 88% of their lives indoors, sheltered from all of the benefits that you get from being outside. And sunlight's not only important to the regulation of your biological rhythms, it's also key to everything from your immune function to your bone health, to your vision, to your cardiovascular health your mood, your alertness, all of these different things. And so as a result of that, when people spend more time in daylight, they tend to experience a, a range of different positive health consequences. So when I speak about strong time cues, what I'm referring to is the difference between the daytime exposures. So how much light you're getting and of what quality and the nighttime ones. And if you're indoors during the day and you're exposed to relatively low light intensities, 
-hmm. And then at night in your bedroom, you have an alarm clock that emits electric light and so on. The difference between those two is not that great. So the amplitude of the time cue is quite small. If on the other hand, at night you use blackout blinds, you don't have any devices in your bedroom, your bedroom's really dark. And then during the day, you're spending two hours outdoors in the middle of the day. That's an enormously different strength of the time cue. And so going back to your original question, in general, when people get those strong time cues, they have clear cycles of exposure to bright daylight during the day, minimal light exposure at night. They eat at regular times of day. They fast at regular times of day and so on, they tend to experience improvements to their mood, to their cardiometabolic health and so on. Mm -hmm. And so it's likely that (laughs) the Mm -hmm. types of behaviors that would align somebody's body clock tightly with the world around them would lead to better health. Hopefully that makes sense. It probably seems slightly esoteric. No, no, it does. So like the, just the, um, the, subjective uh, circadian rhythm itself is more important uh, or it's a, it's a bit stronger stronger cue that the uh, than the um, chronotype that uh, you can still be yeah like in, in a different chronotype but as long as you have like these um, you know established uh, day and night cycles and uh, these other circadian uh, rhythm factors are kind of on, on point yeah yeah, okay. yeah absolutely and interestingly if you just ask people about their subjective preferences so when, when they would like to do things, let's say they're on a desert island and they didn't have to worry about social constraints or getting up at a certain time for work or whatever, that can actually tell you quite a lot about somebody's own intrinsic internal biological clockwork. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. Uh, you mentioned the sunlight and the circadian rhythm. So um, how does the daylight then affect your sleep quality? Like most people don't really associate the the sunlight and daylight with the sleep but it actually has like a huge uh, effect yeah it absolutely does and it affects in a few different ways so obviously there is the effect on the timing of your circadian rhythms and the thing that's important to understand here is that you can think of the timing of your light exposure as being a bit like an anchor for your body's clock Mm -hmm. if you expose yourself to lots of high intensity light that's rich in short wavelengths And that's the type of light you would get outdoors on a sunny day in the middle of the day. If you you expose yourself to lots of that type of light between about two hours before you naturally wake up and two hours after you would naturally wake up, then you'll tend to shift your body's clock earlier. You'll speed up your clock and that will help you fall asleep earlier the following evening and wake up early the following day. So for night hours, that can be very helpful. And then the corollary of that is that late in the day, particularly in the four hours or so before somebody's target bedtime, if they can reduce their exposure to that type of light, then they can further the effect that I just mentioned. So they can go to bed and fall asleep earlier still. If however, somebody is a real early bird, let's say that they're relatively elderly. What often happens in those people is that following the end of adolescence, roughly 20 years old for females and 21 for males, the body clock basically gets earlier and earlier until the grave. And by the time that somebody's in their 70s or 80s, 
somebody might want to go to bed at 7 p.m. and wake up at 3 a.m. And that can interfere with their social lives and so on. So for those people, they actually want to avoid exposure to light in the couple of hours after they wake up in the morning. So they could, for example, use blue blocking glasses. If they're outdoors, they could use sunglasses and so on. And they want to increase their exposure to high intensity, short wavelength, rich light late in the day, particularly in the sort of period between about four hours before they intend to go to bed and one hour before they intend to go to bed. And I say that because if they expose themselves to lots of that type of light immediately before they go to bed, they won't fall asleep. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be late in the day, but probably not in the one hour or so before their bedtime. <laughs> right. yeah. Because obviously we still want them to have good sleep quality. So mm. in that way, light exposure is really important. And if you can't get outside for whatever reason, then you should understand that simple things like your proximity to windows actually have quite a strong effect on the intensity of light that you're exposed to. So in this room right now, which is quite well lit, I'm probably exposed to something like 1000 lux. Lux is the unit of light intensity. One lux is the intensity of light that's emitted by a candle held one meter from the eye. But if I went next door where it's not as bright, then I might be exposed to something like 500 lux. Mm. And the intensity of light decreases exponentially with distance away from windows. So if you're working in an office and you can sit by a window, you should absolutely do that. And there are data showing that office workers, sleep quality relates to their distance from windows. So simple things like that do make a difference. And then yeah. if you can't be by a window, then obviously your indoor lighting can be modified accordingly. And this is sometimes used therapeutically. It's used, for example, in delayed sleep phase syndrome. If you take those people and you give them light therapy lamps, that emit about 10,000 lux. And you have them use those for half an hour in the couple of hours after they wake up in the morning. It does tend to benefit their sleep. They tend to sleep earlier. And as a result of that, sleep slightly longer too. Mm -hmm. And obviously that can have positive effects on things like mood as well. So if you have seasonal affective disorder, then at the moment we're approaching the dark depths of winter, getting one of these devices and using it for half an hour in the morning yeah, I, can have quite a profound effect on how well you have, feel. Yeah, I have one next to me immediately. And when I'm in the morning, then I'll turn it on. It's kind of bright. <laughs> and I also have the uh, red, small red light next to that. So it's like, like a double combo. I get the full spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just a comment on red light. That's that if you're going to have light emitting devices in your bedroom, it's definitely better to have ones that emit red light mm. because short wavelength light, which typically appears to us as being blue or green, but white light that's full spectrum also contains lots of those wavelengths, mm -hmm. has quite strong effects on the circadian system and alertness, but red light doesn't. And there's some interesting research by people such as Yus van Sommeren showing that if anything, using red light late in the day seems to slightly promote sleepiness and it doesn't seem to influence melatonin rhythms much. So if, say, you're using an alarm clock because you're struggling with your sleep and you're implementing stimulus control that I mentioned earlier, get one that emits red light. 
Gotcha. Yeah, that's good. There's also like a, like a direct relationship um, between the amount of sunlight you get exposed to and uh, the like melatonin you produce at night. So if you are getting a lot of sunlight during daytime, then your body will also have like easier time or it will produce a little bit more melatonin um, naturally as well when you're, before you're going to bed. And uh, if you're not yet, yeah, like if you're indoors all the time, then yeah, you may, may not just feel that tired because your body doesn't have, hasn't like, you know, build up this like bank of uh, melatonin almost. Mm-hmm. Any other comments on that? <laughs> no, not really. I think it would potentially be helpful to give people some numbers if, mm. if they're looking for specifics. And so what I'd probably say is if you're a night owl and you want to go to bed earlier and thereby prolong your sleep opportunity, you can spend at least half an hour outdoors in daylight within two hours of waking up in the morning and systematically reduce your exposure to light in the two hours before bed, as well as potentially setting an alarm clock in the morning to reinforce those exposures, then you're likely to experience some beneficial effects on your sleep. And those beneficial effects will potentially be furthered if you exercise in your biological morning. And I say biological morning because it's common for people to say, don't do this after 2 p.m. Don't consume caffeine after midday, whatever it is. I think that's bad advice. And the reason is just that there is the spectrum of chronotypes. And it makes much more sense to speak about exposures relative to somebody's sleep-wake cycle, because then you're speaking about them relative to the person's biological clock. And so with respect to exercise, I think if these people can get outside and exercise between probably one hour after they wake up in the morning and maybe six hours or so, although there are some interesting data on night owl showing that exercising at pretty much any time of day tends to accelerate their clock and help them go to bed earlier and fall asleep earlier. Yeah. And then with respect to caffeine, cutting out caffeine by at least eight hours before bed and ideally capping your dose of caffeine intake at no more than about three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight per day. But those are very generic guidelines and there's huge variability between people and how they metabolize caffeine based on things like their liver health. So people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease might have such poor liver function resulting in such poor caffeine detoxification that the half-life of caffeine can be several days long. Whereas for most people, it's about six hours long. And then there are things like genetic variants in certain genes that encode receptors for adenosine. Caffeine is an adenosine receptor antagonist that will also influence how you metabolize caffeine. But I think that general guidance is a good starting point for people. And once you've tried that, you can then modify your caffeine intake according to how you respond to caffeine. And if you're looking for information about how much caffeine you might be consuming, check out the website caffeineinformer.com where you can find caffeine contents of commonly consumed items such as coffee and chocolate and so on. Mm. So I think that's relatively good advice for those people. And then if you are an extreme morning type, wearing blue blocking glasses in the two hours after you wake up in the morning, keeping the curtains drawn and so on, just having only enough light that you can stay safe indoors while you're awake and then exercising a bit later in the day, maybe between about six hours before when you plan to go to bed 
and about three hours before you plan to go to bed. And also ideally doing that exercise outdoors is likely to help you align your clock a little bit later and thereby feel like you belong to society a bit more than you probably currently do. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's for sure true. Um, I was going to ask a question about the uh, exercise. So like uh, it, it's, I have seen or like research that the more you exercise, the better your sleep is. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, the, the harder you exercise, the longer you exercise, then again, the more you want to sleep and uh, the better quality of the sleep it also is. Yeah. So as with most things in biology, there's probably a sweet spot with respect to exercise load and sleep. So what I mean when I say that is that if you take somebody who's very sedentary, and you put them on a structured exercise training program in which they start being physically active for say 30 to 60 minutes each day, their sleep will tend to improve. They'll fall asleep faster. They'll sleep slightly longer. Their sleep will be slightly more efficient. So they'll spend a greater proportion of time in bed actually asleep. And subjectively, they'll feel like their sleep quality improves too. And that subjective perception of sleep quality seems to relate to things like how frequently you wake up during the night, how much time you spend in REM sleep. So that's definitely a good thing. Mm -hmm. But if you look at athletes, then what you see is that when they really push themselves in training, they go through a so-called overreaching block or even enter into the zone of frank overtraining, then sleep sometimes goes out the window. Their sleep fragments. And there's been some work recently suggesting that overtraining and relative energy deficiency in sport might basically be one and the same thing. But I, I certainly think that it's interesting that sleep tends to deteriorate in both syndromes. Mm -hmm. And so practically what that means is you need to eat enough during those times, gotcha. but also if you're eating enough and your sleep quality deteriorates, then you're probably simply training too much won't be sustainable at some point your body is likely to break down mm. so in between sedentary and overtraining, there's a range of different exercise loads that's probably going to support sleep and we know something about the mechanisms by which it could do so so one is just energy expenditure itself if you're very physically active during the day you burn through lots of energy and as a result of some of the changes that take place in your body that tends to promote sleep hunger hmm. and specifically that relates to things like the accumulation of adenosine and atp in certain parts of the brain then there is the effect on your core body temperature so heating the body seems to be conducive to sleeping well provided that it's at certain times of day and this is one of the reasons that if you have a hot shower between about one and two hours before you go to bed for 10 minutes or so you'll tend to fall asleep faster, have slightly higher quality sleep and potentially sleep slightly longer too. Okay. And that relates to the fact that having that hot shower will raise the temperature of your skin by a couple of degrees. And what that does is it helps you basically radiate heat out of your core and you lose heat very effectively through your palms and your soul specifically. And so because your core body temperature drops faster, you fall asleep faster because the temperature of your brain specifically is important to sleep. And as a tangent, that's one of the reasons why 
there's some interesting work now by people such as Eric Nofsinger showing that if you take people who have insomnia and you cool their brains by having them wear a head cooling device such as the Ebb, they tend to sleep better. So that's a really simple therapy for people who have insomnia with a very low barrier to entry that has real therapeutic potential because the reality is that things like cognitive behavioral therapy are very effective, but they're quite hard for a lot of people. So temperature can certainly have quite a strong bearing on sleep. And then finally, with respect to exercise, there are also changes in things like certain hormones that can support sleep. So if you exercise at relatively high intensities for relatively long durations, then you can see very large surges in the synthesis of things like growth hormone and growth hormone tends to lead to greater what's known as slow wave activity during sleep. And it's that type of activity that underlies the deeper stage of sleep, which is very restorative, not only for your bodily tissues, but it's also important things like the formation of memories, both in your brain, but also in your immune system. Wow, <laughs> super interesting. Um, what, what are other like uh, activities would be good to, let's say, either prepare for a bad night's sleep shift work or recover from it prepare for a bad night's sleep sorry well like a short sleep you know like the shift work scenario yeah so i think one piece of advice that can be transformative is banking sleep when you have the opportunity and this is slightly contentious but i don't personally believe that it's possible to sleep more than your body actually needs mm -hmm. and i think the reality is that when people bank sleep what they're actually doing is paying off some existing sleep debt sure. but if you take people who have relatively good quality sleep but who simply don't sleep enough on a regular basis and you have them extend their time in bed by a modest amount then you see improvements in a range of different health and performance outcomes So I'll just mention a couple of studies related to this. So as an example of this, there was some interesting work looking at healthy young men who regularly restricted their sleep during the working week, said lifestyle-driven sleep loss during the week. And on average, they had something like six hours in bed per night from Monday to Friday. The researchers took those men and they had them come into the lab for two three-day periods. And in one of those three-day periods, they were allowed six hours in bed, which mimicked the working week. And in the other, they were allowed 10 hours in bed. And what they found was that when they were allowed 10 hours in bed, they slept nearly four hours longer than when they were allowed six hours in bed, which is no great surprise. But they had dramatic improvements in insulin sensitivity. So their insulin sensitivity was roughly 40% higher than it was after six hours in bed. And they also experienced uh, boost their testosterone levels. Mm -hmm. So there are clearly some effects on the endocrine system and metabolic regulation. If you look at, say, sports performance, then this has been an area of great interest recently. But one of the early studies on this that got a lot of attention was done by Sherry Ma. And Seema, I'm sure you're familiar with the particular study, but basically they took the Stanford University men's varsity basketball team and they asked the players to extend their time in bed for between five and seven weeks to at least 10 hours per night. Mm. And this didn't have a control condition, so we need to bear that in mind when trying to interpret the findings. But 
what they found was that after that period of sleep extension, the men's time to complete a multi-directional 86 meter sprint improved by nearly one second. And the players also became more accurate when shooting. So both their free throw and three point field goal percentages improved by 9%. Mm-hmm. And the players reported greater well-being. And there's also been work looking at groups of athletes such as triathletes, showing that extending time in bed by 30% improved time trial performance in a bout of cycling lasting roughly one hour by about two minutes relative to their habitual sleep, which is meaningful. And there's work showing that if you take young people who are pretty proficient tennis players and you extend their time in bed over the space of several days, their serving accuracy improves. So the list goes on. So I think just banking sleep and possibly looking to extend time in bed by an amount that's reasonable for the person. I probably wouldn't recommend extending time in bed by more than about three hours longer than habitual. Obviously it depends on what your regular sleep looks like, but if you're physically active during the day and you're not consuming too much caffeine and you have a background of sleep loss, then I think something up to three hours, maybe between one and three hours of sleep extension for a period of several days will help protect you against the subsequent consequences of sleep loss. And there is some work showing that in the context of cognitive performance. And then otherwise, I think there are certain things that people can take to support their performance when short-term sleep. Caffeine is an obvious one. And if the onus is strictly on enhancing performance, during extended wakefulness. So let's say that someone's an ultra endurance athlete and they're trying to get from A to B as fast as possible, but there's a long distance between A and B. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, then having regular low doses of caffeine, so maybe one milligram of caffeine per kilogram of body weight every one or two hours and doing that on a regular basis can really help support performance and and avoid some of those attentional lapses during Mm. that sleep loss. And then otherwise, I think one of the more interesting nutritional interventions that doesn't really get any press is consuming creatine monohydrate. And I published a blog about this recently at resilientnutrition.com if people want to check that out. But the idea here is that if you look at the pharmacology of caffeine, then it basically promotes alertness by blocking the interaction of adenosine with all of its receptors. Mm. And adenosine is a sleep promoting chemical that accumulates in the extracellular spaces in the brain with wakefulness. And so as soon as you remove that blocking effect of caffeine, somebody can experience a really strong so-called caffeine crash. But if you think about another way to target this process, then you could also try and reduce the accumulation of adenosine and ATP in those spaces in the brain. And what taking creatine does is it boosts the total pool of high energy phosphates in the brain. So as phosphocreatine, for example. And what that means is that the adenosine can be recycled more rapidly. So you get a a slower accumulation of adenosine and ATP in the brain with wakefulness which results in less pressure to sleep. And there's some fascinating research by Marcus Dvorak, who I think is now an industry that he did some work at Harvard previously, 
And they took rats and they put creatine monohydrate in the rat's chow for four weeks. And what they found was that when they did that, the rats slept substantially less when the creatine was in their chow. They also had less deep sleep. And after sleep loss, their sleep rebounded less than it did without the creatine. And I know that they've got some research on humans coming out showing similar results, although I'm guessing that the magnitude of the effects is smaller because creatine supplementation seems to boost brain creatine stores much more in rodents than it does in humans. In humans, it's probably something like a five to 10% boost in the brain. Obviously that's depend on the region of the brain and so on. But with that said, there does seem to be an effect on human sleep. And there are also multiple studies showing that supplementing with creatine monohydrate can help preserve performance when humans are either deprived of sleep entirely or have restricted sleep. We don't know anything about things like the optimum dose of creatine to get that effect. But pragmatically, I think that while somebody's going through sleep loss, taking five grams of creatine monohydrate per day, probably with breakfast, ideally in conjunction with a carbohydrate containing food or protein containing food, because carbohydrate and protein can basically increase creatine uptake, mm. can help you realize some of those effects. So those effects, and then, sorry, this is another really long answer, but just to add a couple more thoughts, beyond nutrition, if somebody is experiencing that type of sleep loss, then obviously light exposure matters. And having a light therapy lamp like you have there, seem can really help support performance. So let's say that you just have a very long shift that you have to do, or you're trying to pull an all-nighter, which is bound to be a bad idea, but you're going to do it anyway. Having one of those light therapy lamps can definitely help you. And then also interspersing some physical activity at that time can help you maintain your cognition too. And it doesn't need to be anything heroic. It can be quite simple. You can just be breaking up your time spent sitting by doing some simple mobility exercises. Maybe you're doing some mobilizations to counter the seated posture if you're prone to looking like a desk jockey like I am. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're just walking some flights of stairs. That type of thing can can also help preserve your performance during sleep loss. Mm, well, yeah, those are really good tips. Uh, with the creatine, like you're, so basically with the creatine, you're uh, experiencing less of the side effects from uh, sleep loss. Uh, but you mentioned that the rodents had like less uh, deep sleep as well uh, when they did get the creatine. So it doesn't, doesn't mean that you just need less sleep uh, when you are taking creatine or does the creatine have like intrinsic negative effect on the sleep quality uh, itself as well? Well, the interesting thing about creatine is that when people take it, and there have been studies in which people have taken very high doses of creatine for quite a long time. Some studies of people with certain neurological disorders in which people have taken as much as 30 grams of creatine for years, when the typical dose that people take is something like three to five grams per day. Those people don't seem to have negative effects even if creatine is having these effects on the sleep. So the fascinating thing is that if you restrict sleep through other means or you sleep less through other means, then I think you're bound to experience some negative effects of that sleep loss. But with creatine, you might be reducing actual sleep need. And when you look at the whole body of research on creatine, it's great for all sorts of different health and performance outcomes. So yeah. just to mention some of those, if you look at health, 
then it seems to be quite strongly neuroprotective. If you look at the whole body of research on creatine and cognition, then there was a recent systematic review showing that creatine can boost certain cognitive faculties, including things like memory and some metrics of intelligence too. Mm. It's also potentially have, it potentially has some therapeutic uses in things like mild traumatic brain injury, so concussions and that type of thing. There's quite a lot of research looking at that now. If you look at glucoregulation, then creatine seems to help with blood sugar control. If you look at mood disorders, then there's been some interesting work looking at people who have treatment-resistant depression. These people are given, say, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, and their mood doesn't get better. But when they're then given creatine, their mood brightens after some period. Mm. So there are those effects on health, but then obviously the performance effects are very well established. I mean, creatine has been used probably since the early 90s. It first got attention at the 1992 Olympics when people found out that Linford Christie was using creatine. <laughs> and I suspect he was probably using more than creatine, but that's a different story. <laughs> and it's now very clear that when people supplement creatine on a regular basis and do so in conjunction with strength training, they gain muscle mass and strength substantially faster than they otherwise would. Mm. And then there are effects on things like hydration, creatine potentially, and, and this hasn't been proven, but there are reasons to think that it could help with things like performance at extremes of temperature because it has osmotic properties. It draws water into muscle cells. Mm. And perhaps through some of those changes and fluid balance, creatine could help protect against the negative effects of dehydration or hypohydration yeah. during performance at high temperatures. So basically creatine is great stuff. Mm. And <laughs> if it does shorten sleep, then there's no evidence that I'm aware of that that leads to negative effects, which is interesting and, and possibly differentiates creatine from everything else that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Creatine is amazing. And uh, even like arthritis, things of like that uh, improve, improve that as well. So <laughs> besides, uh, only caveat is like hair loss, maybe if you have um, bad hair loss genetics, then uh, you may not want to take it. Yeah, there's quite a lot of talk about that. And, and you, <laughs> might, you might have seen some research that I haven't seen seen, but my impression is that that is based purely on one or two studies showing that creatine can boost levels of DHT or dihydrotestosterone in men, mm. which tends to be quite androgenic. So in somebody who has the genes that make them susceptible to male pattern baldness, that could potentially accelerate hair loss. But there's no actual evidence showing that creatine ingestion right. accelerates hair loss. Gotcha. And let's say that it does have some small effect if it does, then those people are going to lose their hair anyway. <laughs> it's probably not increasing the total extent of the hair loss. It, it might right. just be bringing it on a tiny bit earlier, but right. I don't think that that's cause for concern. Right. So they might just might as well get over with, get it over with, like take the creatine and uh, get it over with. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you're speaking to somebody who's, who's losing his hair. Right. God forbid, I'm, I'm now 32 and, and too much of it has fallen out already. So... <laughs> I, I figured I might as well try and come to terms with it quite soon. So <laughs> let's just take more creatine and accelerate the process as much as possible. Right. Are there any other like uh, recovery drinks or recovery supplements, recovery protocols uh, that you like? Yeah, there, there are a few. So, so you mean ways of coping 
with sleep loss or do you mean ways of basically restoring yourself to normal following sleep loss yeah like either <laughs> either is fine okay so with respect to maintaining health and performance during sleep loss i think there are various other things that that might be helpful and i i don't want to sound like i'm being overly self-promotional but at resilient nutrition we've just launched a product named switch on which is to my knowledge the only product that's specifically designed to help people be it their physical and mental peak during periods of sleep disruption whether that's sleep loss or poor sleep quality because of some other factors and it's also a product that should help with your performance even if you are sleeping well too and that contains various ingredients that have been shown to support the bodily systems that are negatively affected by poor sleep. And when I say the bodily systems, I'm referring to basically all aspects of biology, because the reality is that there's probably no part of us that is untouched by insufficient sleep. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in nutritional strategy, then you can check that out. And I think there's also a code scene 10. If, if you want a discount on those products currently, Switch on is only available to people in the UK, I think, but it might be that we can post elsewhere in Europe at least. So there certainly are some nutritional strategies that you can try out. But with respect to other behaviors, I think that we covered the most important ones. And then in terms of recovering following a period of sleep loss, I think you want to try and catch up on your sleep to some degree. And, and this is another subject that really polarizes people. There's been some very tightly controlled research showing that certain durations of catch-up sleep in some groups of people aren't necessarily good in the short term. And Ken Wright and his colleagues published some really interesting and rigorous research showing this a couple of years ago. But if you look at the whole body of research, then I think that people should still try and catch up on their sleep to some extent if they've been through multiple nights of dramatic reductions in their sleep and if their sleep quality is otherwise quite good because if you look at cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia then one of the mainstay treatments of that is known as sleep restriction therapy and basically the idea is just that these people might be spending 10 hours in bed per night but only actually be asleep six of those hours and they therefore benefit if, if they start staying in bed for only six and a half hours or so per night because they're matching their time in bed to their actual sleep need. Mm. So the improvement in sleep quality that they experience more than compensates for the fact that they might be getting slightly less sleep. And then over time, that sleep period is slightly extended provided that their sleep quality remains high. So if you put that exception aside, if your sleep quality is generally quite good and you've just been through one week in which you've only had four hours in bed per night, I think you should try and catch up on sleep. And the way that I would do that is quite similar to the type of sleep banking that I mentioned earlier. So just extending your time in bed by probably up to 30% or so. Again, you only want to go to bed when you're actually sleepy, but if you've been through that type of sleep loss, then you probably feel sleepy earlier than you otherwise would. And then otherwise, in terms of lifestyle, I probably wouldn't change too much but just bear in mind that 
you might find that you have a tendency to consume much more caffeine than you did previously to mm. try and overcome that increased sleep hunger that you now feel. But that might actually work against you in this case mm -hmm. because caffeine will reduce that sleepiness signal. But of course, it, it does have effects on things such as the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. And if you consume way too much caffeine, then you could lead to increases in stress hormones and dysregulation of that whole axis, which could have some negative effects on how you feel and your health too. So just don't go overboard with the stimulants during that time too. And you'll probably be okay. And then in terms of other recovery strategies, obviously there are lots of things that you can do. And see, I know that you've spoken a bit about some of these, but potentially that includes things like photobiomodulation hasn't been particularly well studied. There are lots of studies on it, but the quality a lot of a lot of that research leaves something to be desired. But I don't really see any downsides to trying something like that during this time. Mm -hmm. And then there are also potentially some things that you can do to enhance your sleep quality. So obviously you should still be engaging in good sleep hygiene practices, which we haven't really spoken about, but we touched on caffeine. In the pre-sleep period, it's really important to block off at least an hour, but ideally two hours in which to wind down at the end of the day. And the analogy that I like to use for this is that if you've been driving quickly and you need to now park your car, you've got to give yourself enough distance in which to slow down because otherwise you're going to try and park your car and crash. Similarly, if, if you've been very busy during the day and you've had your foot on the accelerator, then if you then just go to bed, you're going to be wide awake because you haven't had time to break. And so during this time, if you can have that hot shower, if you can reduce your exposure to light, if you can actively engage in activities that you find relaxing, which could be listening to relaxing music, it could be reading an actual book and avoid things that are stimulating which often involve screens. And there's some really interesting research looking at young people with problematic smartphone use, showing that if they turn off their phones half an hour before bed, and they do that for several weeks, then they feel less alert when they go to bed, they fall asleep faster, they sleep longer, their sleep quality is better. And as a result of those changes in their sleep, the next day their waking performance improves, their working memory is better specifically. So turn off your phone at least half an hour before bed and then leave it out of your bedroom until you're up and about the next day. And you probably want to avoid watching anything on TV that's too stimulating at this time of day. For the last few days, I've been watching Squid Game with most of the rest of the world, I think. And it, it's engrossing, but also it, it's the kind of thing that it does amp you up a little bit and you probably don't want to watch squid game 15 minutes before you go to bed otherwise you might be wide awake for a little bit yeah so just sticking to to some of those sleep hygiene basics can be really helpful and then there are also things that you can do to actively unwind too so for example deep diaphragmatic breathing through the nose certain types of meditation are probably helpful specifically body scan meditations at this time mm -hmm. and then you, you don't want to force your sleep. Sleep is something that happens when you 
put yourself in an environment that's conducive to sleep. You can't will yourself to sleep better. Yeah. And so really all you can do is try and engage in these behaviors and then just let sleep happen. And I'll just mention one more tip that's related to that. And it's used in insomnia specifically, but it's, it's really interesting. It's relevant to some aspect, aspects of life that we haven't discussed too. It's called paradoxical intention. And it was popularized by Viktor Frankl, who wrote mm. Man's Search for Meaning, of course. And the idea is that what you resist persists. So in the case of sleep, if you go to bed and you're trying to resist wakefulness, you're trying to force your sleep, then you're going to end up staying awake. And based on the research done so far, when people instead go to bed and they're lying in bed in this dark room and they gently hold their eyes open. And then as time passes, they congratulate themselves for staying awake, but remaining relaxed. So they're still breathing slowly at this time through their nose, using that type of diaphragmatic breathing that I mentioned earlier. Mm. They fall asleep much faster. So simply putting strategies like that to use can also be quite helpful. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. For sure, yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> it's, it's going to be hard to, you know, if you have, like, the sleep drive, then it's going to be much easier, for sure, to kind of... Uh, fall asleep and but if you don't have it then it's forcing it it's going to be yeah you're going to end up maybe staying in your bed <laughs> just as being being awake and not really falling asleep yeah and the, the tricky thing with insomnia is that somebody can have a really strong sleep drive but the dysregulation in their biology means that that is just masked and mm. often it's actually in part because of changes in the sympathetic branch of the nervous system what should happen is that you've got this nice high amplitude cortisol rhythm mm -hmm in anticipation of waking up each day there's this big surge in cortisol synthesis it's known as the cortisol awakening response which increases blood pressure mobilizes energy reserves it it boosts cognition and then over the course of the waking day in general cortisol comes down and then you go to bed at night cortisol is low and it's at its lowest during the sleep period in insomnia sleep seems like a stressor to these people and so what instead happens is there's a smaller surge in cortisol in the morning mm. and then cortisol remains somewhat elevated during the day. And then sometimes in anticipation of going to bed, there's a surge in cortisol. So there can be all of the sleep pressure, but because they're stressed out about their sleep, they just can't fall asleep. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, well, yeah, it's been a really awesome, really insightful uh, episode to talk with you. Like, is there anything that you want to talk about more that we didn't cover or mention? I don't think so. I mean, as you can tell, I'm sure I can harp on about this stuff for way too long. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to, to speak about it with you, Seem. So if, if people have questions about anything that's come up today or anything related, then I'd be happy to, to come back on in the future and speak about them. There's one other thing that I will mention, just because I think it's underappreciated and underdiagnosed. I mentioned sleep apnea earlier. Mm -hmm. And in part because the prevalence of obesity is rising. People are getting heavier and heavier over time. The number of people worldwide who have obstructive sleep apnea is increasing in lockstep with that change. Because if you look at the risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea, and of course, one of them is how heavy you are because the mass of your neck influences the likelihood of your neck collapsing during sleep. 
and their way, therefore your upper airway being obstructed. Mm-hmm. And that leads to all of the negative consequences of obstructive sleep apnea. And so with that said, there are probably a lot of people listening to this who actually have obstructive sleep apnea. And some of those people probably don't realize they have it. If, for example, their bed partner has witnessed them stop breathing during the night, gasping for air, or if they wake up with a dry mouth the whole time, then things like that can indicate they might well have sleep apnea. And there's a simple questionnaire that people can take at stopbang, S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G dot C-A that can help identify whether you're at risk for obstructive sleep apnea. So I mentioned that. And then also because insomnia can be really burdensome and because a lot of people do have it, I'll just add that there are online cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia programs that are very effective and some of them are freely available. Mm -hmm. For example, I don't know if it's available worldwide. Certainly it's freely available in the UK. There's a program named Sleepio, S-L-E-E-P-I-O, that people can check out that has been validated as a very effective way of helping people who have insomnia get over their sleep issues. So I point people in in that direction too. Mm, Yeah, we'll put all the links in the show notes and... um... Before I ask my last question, um, where can people learn more about you and your work and uh, your company? So they can learn more about the company at resilientnutrition.com. And there you will, of course, find our products and our first products, which I didn't mention, are basically performance-enhancing nut butters that come in different versions that are suited to different times of day. So there's a version with caffeine and L-theanine, which is ideal if you're looking for something to boost your alertness and your cognition early in the day or to support your performance during extended wakefulness. There's also a version with ashwagandha that is conducive to restoration and also to improving sleep at at night. And there are high protein versions too that contain added whey protein isolate and L-leucine to support recovery. And of course, the restoration of skeletal muscle tissue specifically. Mm. But the other component of what we do is trying to teach people about how lifestyle affects health. And a lot of that focuses on nutrition, of course, but we have a blog there. I also wrote a free ebook entitled The Principles of Resilient Nutrition that people can download on the website. And we're on Instagram at Resilient Nuts. And then my personal Instagram handle is at Greg Potter PhD. And I have a website, which is gregpotterphd.com where people can find out a bit more information about me too. Hmm. Awesome, yeah. <laughs> I really like the uh, anabolic nut butters <laughs> that they have, uh, whey protein and leucine. So yeah, it's a much better alternative than like, you know, canola oil and uh, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, they, they taste all right too. Yeah, they're good. I, I, I tasted the um, gingerbread one, which was uh, really good. Um, yeah, but we'll put all the links in the show notes. Uh, and my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or habit that you wish you had up sooner? I'll give a different response to the one that I gave last time, which I think was to have some sort of stress mitigation practice, such as meditating or using breathing. And I will say 
that it would probably be applying the principles of stimulus control behavior that I mentioned earlier. Hmm. And that's just because of the focus of our conversation today, but putting those to use can be a game changer for some people. So just to reiterate those, only go to bed when you're actually sleepy, save your bed for sex and sleep only. If you've been lying in bed for at least 15 minutes and you haven't fallen asleep, get out of bed and do something relaxing elsewhere. And then if you're really struggling with your sleep, avoid napping during the day and consider setting an alarm in the morning and getting out of bed every day at the same time, because regularity does matter when it comes to sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And uh, it's going to become more subconscious or like more automatic if you do it like that way. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, it was a great uh, to chat with you. And yeah, we could do <laughs> for sure like a follow-up podcast about uh, maybe like some specifics like sleep stabilization or melatonin or things like that. Uh, but yeah, thanks for coming and uh, looking forward to your future work. Good stuff. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, I'll see you around.